This is the Hack the Future podcast, the human stories behind courage, purpose, and imagination. Join your host, Terrence Mowry, who will guide you on the journey of reimagining the world as we know it. Change, it used to happen as a breeze. Now it feels like a Category 5 typhoon. How do leaders learn to see around corners faster? Are leaders prioritizing their billion-dollar beliefs or leaving it to chance? And what's the sweet spot between strategy, profitability, and sustainability? Today, I'm delighted to meet with Professor Rita McGrath. She's a best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and longtime professor at Columbia Business School. Hi, Rita. Welcome to Hack the Future. How are you today? I'm well. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to the show. It feels like change used to happen as a breeze, and now it feels like a Category 5 typhoon. And I wanted to jump straight into a sort of lively conversation with you and get a sense, sort of big picture sense, of what do you think are some of the big challenges keeping leaders awake at night right now? Oh, you can pick your choice. <laughs> uh, you, you, I mean, I mean, sort of. I'm hearing a lot of talk about uh, global uncertainty about Ukraine. Yes. Um, inflation, of course, is a perennial worry. Yes. Uh, interest rates going up. Uh, labor is still not quite settled on what you know what the trade-offs are between employers and employees. Yes. Uh, new new kind of employment models coming into effect. Yes. And of course, bigger uncertainty about the economy. So there's plenty to worry about if you're inclined to worry. It always amuses me. I, I recently came across a job title. This is a true story, a new job title. Uh, and the job title was Head of Uncertainty and Scenarios. <laughs> That's fabulous. <laughs> and I just felt a sort of mix of awe. And uh, I kind of felt sorry for that individual. I thought that is a big expectation every time you turn up at work. Head of Uncertainty. <laughs> So, I can't imagine what that person's life at work is like. I know. So I wanted to ask you the question, you know, one of your wonderful metaphors is snow melts from the edges. Mm -hmm. And I believe this comes from an incredible book of yours, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. And I wanted to get a sense of, can you expand on what that means for our listeners today? Absolutely. So this was inspired by Andy Grove, um, the former Intel CEO, who back in the 90s said, you know, if you wish to know where spring is being felt, you must travel to the periphery because that's where the snow is most exposed. Yes. And my way of saying that is snow melts, but it melts from the edges. And what that really means is that the the weak signals, the early warnings of things that could be potentially very significant for your firm don't present themselves neatly at corporate headquarters wrapped in a bow, you know, yes. with, um, they, they, they emerge where the edges are, where it's weak, mm. where the signals are kind of not yet completely clear. And so the encouragement behind this is you, as a leader, you really need to establish rich mechanisms for getting information backwards and forwards from the edges. And yes. I think a lot of executives fall into the trap of, you know, their noses in their, in their emails and their calendars are cluttered with meetings mm. and they just have no, way of really finding out what's going on. It reminds me of, I think it is a phrase that comes from uh, Alexander Osterwalder, sort of innovation theatre. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and getting, yeah, you know, and getting, Steve Blank and yes. I kind of co-created that phrase. 
Yes. And, and this idea of you know, getting trapped in structural stupidity even. I, I read recently that uh, you know, one in three meetings is considered a bad meeting, costing a th you know, for every thousand people going into a meeting that's considered a bad meeting. It's costing millions and millions of dollars in lost productivity, but also affecting, obviously, uh, engagement levels as well and the ability to spot those strategic blind spots um, that they're blind to. Absolutely. And one of the things I'm working on now is something I call the permissionless organization. Yes. When you talk about meetings, so many meetings are held because people have not really thought about what's the purpose of this meeting. Yes. Um, and if you think about our new tools for work, a lot of us have figured out that we can actually connect and communicate much more effectively. And that if we're not going to be physically together, in a very purposeful and intentional way, yes. then the work that we're doing should really be asynchronous. Like we shouldn't have to be sitting side by side to do most mm. work. Now I would make an exception for creative problem solving. I think that's infinitely better done in person. But yes. you know, if you're just reviewing a report or giving your input to something or reading a proposal, you know, those are not things that you need mm. to do sitting side by side with other people. So I think a lot of what we're experiencing today is mm. a transition from this managerial, bureaucratic, hierarchical way of structuring organizations to something much more technologically intermediated, where we're doing a lot more of our work asynchronously. And I call yes. that the permissionless organization. I love that. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with Michele Zanini, co-author of Humanocracy, and this idea that uh, paying a very high leadership tax or cognitive tax when we're spending so much time ticking boxes every day. And I wanted to ask you, you know, tell, tell me and tell our listeners more about Valise because it sounds like an incredible platform. Oh, thank you. So Valise was founded to help people really implement a lot of the research uh, conclusions that I've come to. So mm -hmm. You know, what I would find is I would give a speech or teach a class or run a workshop and people would be all excited. They'd say, oh, this is great. I've yes. seen the future. The scales have fallen from my eyes. And then they go back to their organizations and it's like, well, is it a spreadsheet? Is it a PowerPoint? Like what, yes. how do I actually make this happen in my company? And so the reason I branded it a little bit differently than the Rita McGrath brand is it's really about doing. And great. among the assets that we've built now are we have um, a, a piece of software, which we call the Spark Hub. Yes. And it's meant to help you make the process of going from an idea mm. to something you might want to introduce to the market very transparent. It structures your thinking. So it takes discovery-driven growth and actually creates a, an electronic structure, as you will, uh, of going through the discovery-driven growth process. And really yes. what it it recognizes is that in those early stages of a venture, trying to come up with a return on investment or producing an 18-month plan is just ridiculous. It's a waste of time. Yes. What you need to invest in then is learning, but doing so in a really disciplined way. And so our software helps you do that. We also have online learning resources. So the vision for those are, let's say you get to a particular checkpoint and your whole team now needs to learn how to do customer interviews. Well, yes. you know, the typical ways that would get done is you sign everybody up for a course or you'd send them off to a class or something. But with our learning guides, what you can say is, okay, everybody finished chapters, you know, two, three, four by the end of next week. Yes. And now you've got an upskilled group of people ready to take on that next step. So I'm very excited about the that combination. Sounds, that's, that's fantastic. And how, how do our listeners today find out more information about Valise as a, as a platform that they could potentially invest in? Uh, well, just www.valise, that's V-A-L-I-Z-E.com, will find us. Very good. Uh, I think it's such an interesting inflection point that we're at right now and this idea that we should not waste one of the biggest reframing moments of our lifetime. And I wanted to ask you, 
discovery-driven planning, discovery-driven leadership. I know, uh, I believe there's a, a program on LinkedIn as well where mm-hmm. um, folks can go and check that out. But can you unpack what that means at, at a more granular level, the idea of sort of disc- discovery-driven planning? Sure. So it had its roots in a mystery. Um, and the mystery was this, that so many well-funded, smart companies who were incredibly successful in their fields just blew it when they tried to get into new areas. And when I first started this research, it was companies like Disney opening up Euro Disney to really disappointing results. Uh, Webvan, you know, one point five. Oh yes, I remember those. Remember Webvan, one point five billion dollars to prove we don't hate grocery shopping as much as we said we did. Um, And 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 it's still happening today. You know, we have Quibi and DrinkWorks and all these things. And when I dug into the causes of these failures, what I realized is there was a very common pattern. All of these things had been planned as though we had facts, when in fact what we were operating on was assumptions. Yes. And when your ratio of assumptions to to knowledge is really high, Mm. a bunch of very dangerous human heuristics start to kick in. Mm. Um, So half of the assumptions get forgotten within a very short period of time. Mm. And then the other half turn themselves into facts in your mind. Yes. Um, And so you can be way down the road with the project before Mm. you actually test some of the most vital uh, assumptions. So what discovery-driven planning was Mm. created to solve for is... In the early stages of a venture, what you want is you want a small amount of money and a small amount of people and a small amount of time to test as many assumptions as quickly as you possibly can before you make a bigger commitment to the project. So that's really the essence of the process. And I love that. And it's this idea of, you know, we can use this in our personal lives as well, can't we? These these types of methodologies. Mm, absolutely. I, I do it for myself. I sort of say, what's the next What's the next time I'm going to learn something really significant about what the next step's going to be? This segues really nicely into other blind spots. So, for example, Amy Webb, a great futurist, she talks about the future fallacy trap and this idea of, you know, prioritizing short-term horizons are always safer and seductive than longer-term thinking. And, and from your, you know, work around the world, consultancy, keynotes, your role as professor, you know, what are some of the big blind spots that you still see out there that are kind of uh, organizations are still very much blind to? A lot of it's human. Yes. You know, a lot of it's um, just being so busy, you're not seeing what's what's obvious. Um, I think another one is confusing your preferences with your predictions. Yes. Um, I see that a lot. You know, people have a future they'd prefer, so they don't pay attention to anything else. And they become very myopic. Um, yeah, very myopic. Yes. Um, I think one of the most interesting phrases I've ever heard uh, was spoken by William Gibson, who's a science fiction writer. Yes. And he very famously said, you know, the future is already here. It just hasn't been evenly distributed yet. Yes. Um, which I think is quite profound. So one of the things I'd encourage your listeners to ask themselves is, when are the times I regularly go and visit the future? You know, do I go to say consumer electronics? Do I yes. visit an industry conference that isn't my own industry? Do I take the time to perhaps listen to a podcast that's a little bit out of my area? Yes. And and if, unless you put yourself in those positions, you really don't get exposed to where that future is beginning to emerge. Yes. I mean, I, I've got one of your quotes in front of me here, and, and I'll just read it out for everybody's benefit. Um, unfortunately, facts are often a lagging indicator of what could potentially be important. By the time you're dealing with a fact on the ground, whatever led to it has already happened. Exactly. Yes. 
And, and uh, there's another one here as well, which I think is worth mentioning. Exploiting a sustainable competitive advantage is great if you can find it. I got invited to speak at a sort of annual conference yesterday for Unilever. Uh, I met the CEO of Unilever as well, and it was a really interesting conversation. And we spoke about the sweet spot, the sweet spot between strategy, profitability and sustainability. And I was wondering, you know, what's, what's your view of the whole ESG uh, agenda, where that's going some of the sort of challenges and risks around it? Well, I think the fundamental problem with a lot of our uh, natural resources struggles yes. is that the impact has been mispriced. Um, and this is this is a problem of capitalism that goes back, you know, as far as the tragedy of the commons. And you may be familiar with that story. Oh, yes. It basically says, if you don't have some kind of external force that exerts control over who's allowed to use what social resources. Uh, you, you will have this tragedy of the commons. The resource gets overused, um, yes. you get into conflict, and eventually the commons becomes profitless and worthless for everybody because it's been so abused. Mm -hmm. And so the solution is you have to build in true pricing mechanisms when you, mm -hmm. you know, mechanisms that take into account the social cost, the yes. environmental cost, uh, the cost to society. Mm -hmm. And very often in many of these systems that have grown up without anybody really designing them, mm -hmm. uh, there's just fundamental mispricing. Yes. Um, so if you think about, you know, the, the, you think about a bottle of fancy bottled water, right? Mm -hmm. And you compare that to the cost of a gas, a gallon of gasoline. Mm -hmm. In many cases, the bottled water is, you know, people will pay 10 bucks for a bottle of water. Yes. <laughs> yes. Know, if it's fancy enough. Um, and so that's that's a complete misprice, right? That that gallon of gasoline, when you prop, properly sketch out the impact it has uh, across the various realms, um, you know, is, is much much bigger and should be much much more expensive um, because capitalism will respond to price signals, right? Um, and so I think the first problem with ESG is you're dealing with a an economic um, system that has not been designed around assessing the true impact of these things on you know society at large yes and and when you have that what will happen is people will privatize the gains you know and socialize the costs mm -hmm. and that's that's the fundamental problem we're dealing with so i think part of the yes. dilemma with the whole esg agenda is it gets mm -hmm mishmashed in there with all kinds of other things you know we get ourselves involved in culture wars and yes talk about woke capitalism and, and i think you need to take three giant steps back from that and say look let's yes. leave aside you know your political your political social cultural beliefs like i'm not even talking about that i'm just talking about yes if you just look at the benefit to people that do environmental harm versus mm -hmm. the costs to everybody else, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear you need to take some kind of action. And it's going to have to be a government because yes. markets fail in those conditions. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's such a such a critical point uh, and this, this risk that actually uh, ESG does become a victim to the culture wars. And mm -hmm. I wanted to segue into a kind of another theme which is uh is, is hot right now which is chat gpt or generative ai in general whether that's bard or poe or anthropic everybody's talking about it um mm. as our listeners know as we all know elon musk and a whole a whole suite of uh, uh ai experts around the world have uh, proposed some type of uh, moratorium and i wanted mm. to get a sort of big big picture uh sort of view from yourself of you know What's your view of ChatGPT or, or these types of generative AI technologies and their impact on strategy? I mean, are we going to get to a point where ChatGPT will actually be able to see around the corners for us? 
<laughs> well, you have to remember that all these AIs are dealing with lagging indicators, right? Yes. So let me just spend a minute on that because I think yes. that's a really, really important point. So um, mm. if you think about the data that you can use to think about the future, um, yes. lagging indicators are those facts on the ground, right? They're great information about stuff that hasn't that has already happened. Then you have current indicators, which give you a sense of what's going on right now. So yes. things like your net promoter score, for example, might be a current indicator. And the hardest thing to get and the data that is at the heart of good strategies are leading indicators. So yes. by the defi that definition, leading indicators are uh, concepts that don't exist yet. They often take the form of stories. They are often qualitative. And the benefit of having a leading indicator to guide your strategy is not necessarily, did it predict what would happen? It's much more about, did it prepare you for what would happen? So I think the first thing to remember about any AI is it's only as good as the data sets it's trained on. And those by definition are already things that exist in the world. So <laughs> a, a chatbot, an AI is gonna be very good at summarizing, at, at distilling perhaps, at finding patterns, at looking at things that you know, they can assemble much more quickly than a human brain could assemble them. So I think those are all very powerful things. But you have to remember, it's not looking at the future in any kind of mystical way. So that's the first point. And I think the second point is that what I see these things doing is accelerating the process of gathering and distilling information as a sort of part one of perhaps a strategy exercise. So if I said to a chat GPT, you know, give me a high level profile of the uh, demographic profile of these 10 countries right it could it could produce that for you marvelously because demographics you know how many 80 year olds in the world it's largely determined by how many 60 year olds in the world there were six, 20 years ago so um i think the chat gpt will really be an accelerant to and and similar technologies will be a real accelerant to the creative process, but they're yes. not going to substitute for the creative process. Yes, it's. I think, and and I mean that that's very close to my heart. This idea that actually we need to be asking questions such as how do we align technology to best serve the interests of humanity? The story's still unwritten. You know, will AI be an enabler and enforcer, some type of dystopian dictator? And, and let's really go big on the ethical guardrails as well, and the learning and the experimenting around that technology. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there was a fascinating story the other day about um, in Germany, mm -hmm. uh, the you know, officialdom is using AI to prosecute people who put porn on websites like Twitter that haven't been safeguarded against children possibly accessing them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no human being could go through the amount of, of material that you need to go through to come to the conclusion these people were actually processing porn. Yeah, but an AI that. could. And I thought that was interesting. Yes, so it. it's going to be, be challenging because a lot of these dark corners of the web, people have just assumed that they're anonymous, that they can do things. And I think one of the more interesting applications of AI is, hey, yes. you know, we can actually enforce these rules. As you were sharing your insights there, it reminded me of another great book by Roger Martin, um, A New Way to Think. And I know that he writes at length about lagging indicators as well mm -hmm. and the limitations of AI. Let's just take a, a strategic pause here. Um, a lot of the listeners are CEOs, they're business leaders, and they're all interested in activation, really thinking and acting like a strategist. I think you've said in the past, strategy is stuck. Can you expand mm -hmm. on that comment? Yeah, so a lot of our 
ideas about strategy. If, I, if you pick up a strategy textbook, for example, that's being handed out to undergraduates, you will find a world that's characterized by five competitive forces that are relatively stable, yes. by industries that move slowly and have stable boundaries, by competition that's, I'll call it almost cookbook competition. It's ah, like, yes. um, you know, I find an attractive position in an attractive industry. I throw up entry barriers like crazy. And I, you know, giggle to myself as I enjoy my sustainable competitive advantage. And that's still <laughs> the world that a lot of strategy material refers to. Yes. And I would argue that's that's an incorrect view of a lot of the way the economy works. And mm. it, it comes to us, you know, from financial economics, um, sorry, industrial economics. Yes. So, so strategy came to us from industrial economics. Mm. And industrial economics makes two fundamental assumptions. The first assumption is that industries exist. And I'm here to tell you, they don't. <laughs> we made yes. them up out of convenience. Yes. And the second is that the normal state of things is equilibrium. And those two assumptions, to me, are fundamentally a part of a lot of material that gets bunched under the name of strategy. But if you think about the world we live in now, entry barriers are very difficult to sustain. Um, it's much easier to copy or imitate or, you know, embed or buy um, some new innovation than it's ever been. And, you know, companies are constantly moving from challenge to challenge mm -hmm. as they face their strategies. So if I were to take Netflix, just as an example, yes, um, their first challenge in their early, early days was, you know, can I get somebody to give me money every month to send them a DVD in a red box? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, in a red envelope. Yes. Um, so that was challenge number one. And they sort of sorted all that out. Right. And then the next challenge was, oh, my God, these people that have been giving us content at very favorable prices have now suddenly realized that our success is cutting off some of their revenue streams. So now we got to figure out how to get control over the raw material that goes into our subscriptions. So that became a second big challenge. Yes. Third big challenge, you know, oh, now we need to move the whole company's center of gravity into streaming from DVD. That's another big challenge. So if you think about strategy today, it's much more organized around a life cycle where strategies are created. There's a period of time in which they enjoy their moment in the sun. As so it almost like a vitality. Then, sorry? Almost like a sort of sustaining that, that vitality and renewing it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think of, of companies as, as having to per perpetually fill their pipeline of new advantages as their old advantages fade away. Yes. And that's a very dynamic view of strategy, which a lot of our existing strategy practice really doesn't embrace. It reminds me of a Japanese word I discovered, uh, which called, it's called henka, and this idea mm -hmm. of uh, leading and embracing a perpetual state of beta, which I love mm -hmm. as a sort of uh, a, a mantra for organizations to not just sustain, uh, sustain vitality for today's world, but obviously the day after tomorrow as well. I, I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you uh, another one of your great publications, The End of Competitive Advantage, How to Keep Your Strategy Moving as Fast as Your Business. Tell me, tell us, Tell, my, uh, tell me, tell, tell my, uh, our listeners more about that particular book, the big takeaways from that book. Again, I think it aligns very closely to our, you know, what we're speaking about, this sort of idea of a transient advantage. Yeah, so the book really centers on what I call a new playbook for strategy. So we're going from the assumption 
that uh, change is the weird thing and stability is the normal thing. We're we're really moving towards an assumption where, wow, things have been stable for a long time. Should I start to worry? Yeah. <laughs> um, so continuously reconfiguring to grapple with that is one. Um, yes. A second pillar is what I call healthy disengagement. So yes. when something has reached the end of its sell-by date, how do you disengage from it? How do you pull the resources out of it so that you can use those resources to fund your next foray into the future. Yes. Third is resource allocation, right? And you need to get your best resources against your best opportunities. And in far too many organizations, resources are just stuck. You know, they're held hostage by senior people. There's all kinds of political agendas. There's, you know, territorialism. Um, and we need to break through all that if you're going to really be competitive. Um, yes. Innovation needs to become uh, a key proficiency, you know, right now in far too many in organizations, innovation's a sideshow. It's innovation mm. theater, as we were mm. talking about earlier. Instead, what you want is ideation, incubation, acceleration, operating at a rhythm that is stable and that produces a continuous flow of new things. Mm. This all has big implications for leadership. And as we've touched on already, um, leaders need to be more discovery driven. They need to be actively getting information from the edges, you know, yes. pushing the organization to tell them the truth, you know, really getting to the heart of the matter. Yes. Um, and finally, we have the talent equation, which mm. is that like it or not, today we're in this kind of tour of duty situation with respect mm. to talent. You know, yes. people have just been through this trauma. They've reevaluated their options. They're thinking about what they want to do. And this was underway before the pandemic, but yes. the pandemic, I believe, has accelerated it, which mm. is you know, do I really want to be doing this? Am I finding this meaningful and purposeful? You know, am I being treated well? And there's just this whole series of questions about talent that yes. the impact of means that people are not in role, you know, in tenure with organizations for particularly long periods of time. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Professor Linda Gratton where she spoke about 300 million people on the planet having no friends, you know, high levels of isolation, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think exactly the, the pandemic has been an accelerant for so many things, but also how much am I getting to put my purpose to how much am I getting to put my, we're coming to the final couple of, we're coming to the final couple of minutes of our conversation today and two or three, if there was at all take practical takeaways for our listeners to, uh, activate strategy, to turn talk into action summation or of summation or you know to really help uh, folks activate uh, and bring strategy strategic uh, readiness to life in their day-to-day -day work and in their personal lives as well well as a leader the most powerful thing that you have complete control over is your agenda yes and i'll get calls all the time and people will say things to me like oh you know we need more innovation around here our program's getting stuck not enough stuff's getting to market and before I go meet with them, I'll say, well, why don't you send me the agenda that you used the last time you got together with important people to talk about important stuff? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'll send it to me. And a lot of times, you know, innovation or new business development, whatever they call it, it's like my item number 18, you know, yes. right next to material safety data sheet update. And That's crazy. <laughs> um, and, you know, that that the organization's not stupid. You know, the people that work for you are not stupid. They probably know more about what you actually care about by the way that you spend your time by the way that you spend your curiosity, by the things that you ask about, by the things you ask to get reports about, than you do. So yeah. they study you very carefully because to them, you are a very big force in their future success. So they're going to be very mindful of everything that they see. So the simplest change you can make immediately, and it, it's free, it doesn't cost anything, yes. is 
let's say it's innovation that's important, make it item one, two, or three on your agenda. Every yes. meeting, every conversation, yes. every time you run into somebody in the elevator, mm. um, ask about something having to do with innovation and not about what's this quarter's results going to deliver. Yes, I love that. And for our listeners to be able to stay in contact with you and follow your work as well, I know you're super active on uh, in H- HBR, Harvard Business Review, for example. Mm-hmm. Your pub- Have you got any new publications coming out over the next couple of months? Uh, well, one just came out in uh, last month. Yes. Um, it, it, this was on this permissionless organization concept. Ah, yes. And I'm working on one that looks at how you can analyze big data to, and this actually is uh, kind of relevant to our conversation about AI and strategy. Yes. Uh, so we're looking at how you can analyze big data to inform yourself about the strategic landscape that you're looking at. Yes. Uh, so I'm hoping to have that one done soon, but um, <laughs> and, and- it's always unpredictable exactly when they're going to hit. And thought sparks. Can you share what what that what that is? Because that's a, that's a great newsletter that I receive as well. But just for our listeners' benefit, thought sparks. Oh, so thought sparks is my weekly take on things I think are interesting, um, yes. and it it varies. The topics vary, but it's a weekly um, sort of short essay on the things I think are provocative or interesting or new new. Yes. And then what we do is we compile them into a monthly wrap up, which we mail to our mailing list, and it's free. And so if you want to join it, you can go to my website and just sign up there. Rita, thank you so much for a wonderful, insightful conversation today. It's been the equivalent of a double espresso. Um, Rita McGrath, professor at Columbia Business School, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.